Good morning, Church 21. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. I'm glad you're here. It's really a privilege for me to be here and to get to bring God's word to you today. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors in training here at Church 21. And it's just awesome to get to bring this final sermon in this series in the the book of Revelation today to you. And uh, if you're here because you set your clocks correctly and you you made it back from reading week or wherever you were this week, some people are still not here because they're making their way back. But if you're here, then you're here for a special treat because I have some financial advice to bring to you today. But I'm joking. I'm not really fit to bring you financial advice. But it's not every day that we get to open the pages of the Bible and find some financial advice from Jesus talking about buying gold today. So I'm not fit to give you financial advice, but imagine if I came here and I told you about the next great investment that you really need to get in on that's really going to take off. You might listen to me, but you'd really want to know if I have the credentials, the authority to give you that kind of counsel. But then if I did, my counsel would be worth something to you. So some people have that kind of insight. They can see what trends are rising in the future, where you should put your money that's going to make you more money. Some people do this. But can you imagine still more if you were able to receive this counsel from someone who's omniscient, knowing all things, knowing the rise and fall of everything in the end and what will endure So today, Jesus offers us something that we can truly bank our lives on. Because, you know, we measure our lives often in achievements and successes. But a lot of the time, these standards aren't accurate. And money is one of them. Money is elusive. So Jesus has some better financial advice for us today. But we're looking at this, I'm bringing up this subject because we're looking at this church in Laodicea, like Dwight said, that was known for being successful. They were known for their wealth. You could say they made all the right investments. But then Jesus comes to them and he tells them that what they have is worthless. And then he counsels them to buy something from him. So today we're going to look at Jesus' authority. Because remember, I said, I'm not the authority on this subject. But what is Jesus' authority and how does he speak to this church out of his all-sufficiency to this imperfect and not self-sufficient church and how we can find security in him? So we're wrapping up this sermon series in the book of Revelation. And in chapters 2 and 3 of this book, we read these seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches in ancient Asia Minor. And... uh, These churches were really important. These were special churches because they represented the body of Jesus followers in the first century when the gospel was turning the world upside down. And what I mean by the gospel is this, that we have a holy God who's our creator who came to earth and took on flesh in the Son of God and his name was Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to his father, the life that we were created to live but could never live. But he ended by dying an innocent death hanged on a cross. But he died that death as a sacrifice 
that would cover all of our offenses against this holy God so that we could be reconciled to him. What's more, Jesus didn't stay dead because if he died and that was it, then his perfect life and his innocent death would just be an example to us. But he rose from the dead three days later, and that's what we're going to celebrate on Easter a couple weeks from now. And he conquered sin and he conquered death, and now he's seated alive today at the right hand of God the Father on his throne. And he wants to abide in his people. So he will come and dwell in you by a confession of faith and belief in him. This news was transforming the world at that time. As the gospel was spreading, people's lives were being changed. Relationships were being reconciled. Um, People were literally being healed. But as this transformation is taking place, we still live in a broken world where things are not the way they should be. And we still have broken lives where we we do things that we don't want to do. And we don't do things that we should do. So living in this in-between time requires faith, something called faith. And in writing to these churches, I say all this to, um, to point out that in writing to these churches, Jesus is assessing their faithfulness. In what ways have you been faithful and need to continue? And in what ways have you not been faithful and you need to change? We've seen Jesus give encouragement to a lot of these churches And we've seen him rebuke and challenge some of these churches. Well, the church in Laodicea today just gets a rebuke. Just some challenging words from Jesus. But they're helpful and they're hopeful. So what was Laodicea like? I mentioned that they were wealthy, that they were known for their success in a few areas. If you'd gone to Laodicea, you would notice the theaters. You'd notice the stadium. You'd see the gymnasium and the bath. And you'd even notice aqueducts, which was a unique feature for that city. They were wealthy. They had these these kinds of features in their architecture and their infrastructure. But what was wrong with the picture that would cause Jesus to come to them with rebuke? Well, the Laodiceans, though they were a city known for its physical wealth, they had found themselves spiritually poor, having placed their faith in the wrong standard of success. What happened is their faith became apathetic. Their their minds became proud and their hearts became secluded. And so for us, we need to be cautious of how we evaluate our spiritual health. Sometimes we think, I'm doing great. My job is good. My family's good. God must be smiling down on me. But if we're not finding Jesus as sufficient to bank our lives on, then we have a warning to listen to. In each of these seven letters that we've read from, Jesus opens up with an introduction that's kind of a description of his character that's apropos to the situation that he's speaking to or the people that he's speaking to. And this is what we read in Jesus' authority speaking to the people of Laodicea. What Dwight read, he said, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. See, Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this story. He has seen the rise and fall 
of kingdoms and stands above time to give us his counsel. He's the beginning of God's creation. That means he's the source from whom all things flow. All things are from him and through him and to him. And he's the faithful and true witness. That means Jesus is the only one who has taken on flesh and live in the perfect life of obedience to God the Father. And he can stand as the witness who brings the word of testimony that contradicts this church's boast of wealth and can also stand to contradict our self-perceptions. And he's the amen. He's the final word. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises and judgments. This is Jesus' authority. And it's from his perfect self-sufficiency and his authority that he speaks to the Laodiceans in their flawed self-perception of self-sufficiency. So we're going to see today Jesus illustrate or describe the church of Laodicea in three different ways. Take a look at verses 15 and 16 to see how Jesus first describes the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. See, the outworking of their faith, well, it was neither hot nor cold. Instead of being faithful, Jesus finds them indifferent. Their actions, their affections have dwindled into being stagnant and stale. The, um, the message transliteration of the Bible puts it this way. You're stagnant, you're stale, you make me want to vomit. Strong words from Jesus. And Jesus illustrates this with the idea of a beverage that's no good to him. We can understand like a hot beverage has some refreshing properties like coffee or tea. We can even understand that a cold beverage is thirst quenching. That's refreshing in its own way on a warm day. But is faith like a spectrum from hot to cold? Sometimes we might think, well, I'm not that super passionate Jesus follower who's sharing his faith with everybody on the street, but I'm not cold, so I must be okay. Is faith like this spectrum? Well, by Jesus' assessment, he sees lukewarmness as a subtle form of faithlessness. Jesus would even prefer, he says, would that you were either hot or cold. We would understand why Jesus would want them to be hotly passionate for him. But he says, would that you were hot or cold. That brings up a different concept. Why would Jesus wish this? If we wanted to look for an explanation within the Bible, we might take a look at this um, scripture in a couple books back in the New Testament in 2 Peter. Peter writes this about people who followed Jesus but ended up teaching lies about Jesus that were taking people away from him. says that it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. It would be better to be coldly unaware of God than to have been a hotly passionate follower of Jesus only to turn your back and become lukewarm or lead others astray. We might even look to um, this example from um, 
Boston, Laureate, uh, Boston University professor, a Nobel laureate, Elie Weissel. He's a Jewish Holocaust survivor, and he says this about indifference, which is what we're talking about right now. He says the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. He goes on, the opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. He explains, because of indifference, one dies before one actually dies. So to be in the window and watch people being sent to concentration camps or being attacked in the streets and do nothing, that's being dead. He's saying that apathy is just as deadly. It's, it's, it's equivalent to being complicit in the crime. How does this lukewarmness happen? What's interesting about the city of Laodicea is they didn't have a drinkable water supply. So it's interesting that Jesus uses this illustration of water. They had aqueducts in their city, which was a unique feature because it was costly to build and maintain those aqueducts. But they only had little murky, muddy tributaries to drink from. So they got water from these hot springs, which are rich in minerals, five miles away, that would travel along the route. And as it traveled away from its source, it became lukewarm as it reached the city. We know that at one point, Laodicea was reached by the gospel that I just described previously. We know that the Apostle Paul had sent letters of encouragement and instruction through Laodicea. He would even include personal greetings to this church in his letter to the Colossians. Jews and non-Jews became Jesus followers. They became Christians in this city. That's why there's a church there. At one point, the source of the gospel was strong amongst them. But what happens is that time carries us away from that source and we become lukewarm if we don't continually go back to that source of our salvation, which is Jesus. Where do you find your source for life? The only alternative for the Laodiceans was this murky, muddy, undrinkable water. Are we trying to are we trying to find life in things that don't give life? Is the illustration here? Is our faith in Jesus marked with apathy or indifference, maybe towards sin in our lives, in our culture, even in our church? We might say things like, I used to fight sin, but it got too hard. Now I just live with it. I've given up. This will just be my one thing. We all have that one thing that I'm just going to take it to my grave. I can't fight this anymore. Have we become lukewarm in our fight against sin? Ellie Weissel relates indifference to watching the atrocities of the Holocaust and turning a blind eye. Have we turned a blind eye toward sin in our culture by ignoring the destructive power of industries like the porn industry? Do we just kind of live with it and just deal with it and, and believe that it's always going to be here? Do we not even have concern for the injustices in our city? Do, do we know what the injustices are? Do we even want to know? What about infanticide in this generation? But with all these problems, 
the lukewarm or the apathetic would say, what can I do about it? What's one person going to do about an industry? There's lots of ways that we can look for stories about one person who rose up against the odds and changed something that was bigger than themselves. But here in Revelation 3, Jesus gives away a better answer in verse 21 when he says he's the conqueror. We're going to look at Jesus as a conqueror who invites us to conquer in him. So he's the perfect one that we can look to who did rise up, live the perfect life. And we know that one day will end all wrongs and he will make an end to all indifference and lukewarmness. And we can see, because we know in the end that Jesus wins, that it's as good as done. So now, today, we can fight passionately for joy in Jesus. We can fight against sin in our lives, knowing that our fight is not in vain. Even though sin is a bigger problem than than we can handle, we know that Jesus has decisively defeated sin so that we can too. Well, how does Jesus approach the lukewarmness, the apathy of this church in Laodicea? He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. You're stagnant, you're stale, you make me want to vomit. Jesus could turn his back on us because we have turned our backs on him and we would rightly deserve that response. As one who's truly self-sufficient in himself and in his holiness, Jesus doesn't need us to be passionate. Like, come on, guys, you're not pulling your weight. He doesn't need that. He's not looking for our passion to boost him up. But it's because he desires us. See, Jesus isn't lukewarm toward you. He's not lukewarm about you. He's passionate about you. He doesn't look at Andrew and think, meh. He doesn't look at Nadine and say, eh, whatever. He's passionate about you. If you don't believe that, you can look at his passion for you on the cross, at what lengths he was willing to go to to get you. He's not lukewarm towards you. We've looked at Jesus' first description of the church in Laodicea as being lukewarm. We're going to look at two more descriptions of how Jesus illustrates the church in Laodicea. And we see here our second point. If you look at um, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea's self-assessment was this. We're rich. We've prospered. We have no needs. And you could see contextually that Laodicea was a commercial center. It was a thriving place. They were situated along a commercial route. So yeah, they were good at selling things and making money. They had a prosperous, successful textile industry where they would produce garments and cloth made from this black wool that was local to their region that people would wear. They had a medical school that was renowned and went 
uh, worked towards the cure of ophthalmia. So they were the pros, and these were their expertise. And Jesus didn't find fault in their success, like, guys, you're not allowed to be so successful. It was their mistakenly proud self-assessment summarized in the three words, I have no need, I need nothing. At one point in, in Laodicea, there was an earthquake that destroyed the whole city. Earthquakes were not uncommon in that region, but on one occasion it destroyed the city, and as part of the Roman Empire, you were eligible to receive disaster relief funds, financial assistance from the Roman Empire to, for rebuilding and reconstructing. But on this occasion, Laodicea rejected the emperor's financial assistance and said, no thanks, we got this, we can recover from our own resources. I have no need. Hmm. So the success of this city of Laodicea had elevated them to this level of renown, their reputation. Yet Jesus comes to them with this sovereign authority and he approaches their pride with humbling truth, exposing the spiritual deception of their physical wealth. Jesus says, well, they think they're rich, but in fact, they're poor. And as I mentioned before, it's easy to think that when things are going well, we must be hashtag blessed. Or that when the praises go up, the blessings come down and we must think oh, everything's going well. But there's two contradicting statements here because Jesus says, no, you're not too blessed to be stressed. You have other things to worry about. <laughs> All right, so the Laodiceans say they're rich and frankly, the evidence backs this up. But Jesus says they're poor. Well, is Jesus wrong? Are you not seeing that? Yes, they literally are rich. They are wealthy. Jesus contradicts their boast because there's two realities to factor in here. Yeah, there's a physical, temporal reality, but then there's this spiritual, eternal reality as well. And Jesus says that spiritually, they didn't realize that they were wretched, pitiable, poor and blind and naked, which is ironically the opposite of everything that they had thought that they had. Physical health and well-being does not indicate spiritual health and well-being. And what's really neat here is with the Laodiceans, Jesus comes to them and dismantles their selfish idolatry on their own turf. If you understand what Jesus is saying here about what they were so good at, and Jesus speaks to them in the language they understand, and he schools them in the very areas in which they held their prestige. When he says, I counsel you to buy from me. See, they were used to selling things, but Jesus isn't buying it. I counsel you to buy from me. Picture this, like I said at the beginning. Imagine if we had financial counsel from the creator of all things seen and unseen. Well, how much would that be worth? Consider this the best investment advice you could hope for when Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. So picture Warren Buffett. He's, he's a genius in the world of investments. His time is worth a lot of money. And uh, actually every year, he offers his time up for auction on eBay. And you can sit down for lunch with Warren Buffett. You and seven of your friends will sit down for lunch with him if you're the highest bidder. 
And last year's bid was $2.7 million. That's an expensive lunch. But that's down from the previous year's $3.4 million. But when he has advice for you, you listen. Because his words are worth that much. But how much more should we listen when the Lord of the universe, Jesus who rose from the dead, says, I counsel you to buy from me. But the people of Laodicea, they are the pros. They're the experts who, who are successful in all the right things. They're the Warren Buffets. We should be listening to them. But Jesus says, no, listen to me. People would say to the Laodiceans, um, we want to give our money to you. We want to dress like you. We benefit from your medical school. This was a place of sought-after influence. Yet Jesus comes not to buy into what they're doing, but to turn the tables and say, actually, I'm going to counsel you to buy from me the very things that you think you have, the gold, the garments of white, the healing for your sight. This would be like Jesus going to Warren Buffett and saying, all right, you may think you're worth $87 billion, but you failed to realize you're actually poor and homeless, and I'm going to counsel you to buy from me. And you might think, this sermon doesn't apply to me because I'm not sitting here proud of my wealth. That's not my problem. But what are you good at? What puts you on the map? Is it your work? Could it be your money? Is it your family? Is it your education that your your degree that you have or that you're here right now trying to get? Whatever it is, Jesus knows you. He knows your field of expertise. He knows what you're good at. I'm not going to tell you that the answer is to quit your job or drop out of school. That's not the right answer. But I want to ask, what is your standard of success, where having achieved it, you could finally say, I have no need. Where if you had that degree, you could say, good, cross that off. I don't, I have no need. Because all my needs I can, I can provide for now. Or, yeah, if I just have the perfect day at home, then I won't need. If I just had the right amount, then I'd have no need. Personally, being in need isn't fun. Asking for grace isn't fun. So we try to avoid it or we try to hide it. But it's not easy to admit our needs because eventually, inevitably, our needs will inconvenience someone when we ask for help. So last week I experienced this when I was driving to church here, parked my car on St. Catherine Street, and I left the lights on. Um, Brian Alton texted me, hey, your lights are on, you should turn them off. Um, but my car battery died. It was too late. So I could have hidden my need, I could have avoided my need if I bought one of those things that I could plug in and it jumps your car for you. Or if I called a car service and they would come and do it. But instead I took the opportunity to ask for help. After church I saw Dave Long and I said, hey, after you know, if you're not doing anything, can you jump my car? Can you help me out? And he did. But what's interesting is when David went to his truck to start up, his truck wouldn't start. And so Brian Alton, again, to the rescue, jumped his truck, and then Dave circled around and came and jumped my car, and we were all on the road. But 
we all have needs. So who are we trying to hide our needs from? Having needs doesn't let you off the hook from helping others in need. In fact, we give out of the grace that we have received. That's a perfect example of that. So in what area are you trying to hide your needs? Not so fast. Um, In what area of life do you try to not ask for grace? Even our spiritual needs. We think, if I'm good enough, if I wake up early enough, read the Bible enough, pray enough, go to church enough, then I can do this. What's your gold? What's your, your measure of success? What does it mean when Jesus says, I counsel you to buy your gold from me? So what is this gold refined by fire that Jesus is talking about? What is this Jesus gold? How do we buy these garments? How do we buy this healing? Who do I write the check out to? See, Jesus is asking the Laodiceans to buy something that they can't afford. That's something they're not used to. Really, they could only purchase these items by his grace. See, Jesus can offer the gold refined by fire because he's the one who passed through the flame of wrath, which extinguishes sin, so that he can hold out the gold crowns to those who conquer in him. He's the one refined by fire. You don't have enough money to buy this gold. You don't have enough good works to piled up to wear these white garments that Jesus is talking about, these white garments of righteousness. You don't have enough medical insurance to cover this healing. You can't afford to buy them, but you need them. The only way out of this dilemma is to rely on grace. You need someone to buy them for you. So that's Jesus who takes his robe of righteousness off and gives it to you because he exchanged it on the cross for your sin black robe of debt. He offers this salve for our blindness because we've received healing at the cost of his wounds. What Jesus offers isn't free, and yet we can't afford to buy it. But he invites us to receive it since he's already paid that cost. The next way that we see Jesus describe the church in Laodicea, we've seen that they are lukewarm. We've seen seen that they're proud. But Jesus describes them one more time through through this illustration in verses 19, 19 through 20. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. So the lukewarm faith and the false measure of success for the Laodiceans had secluded them behind closed doors where we see Jesus at this door. Jesus illustrates this by proverbially coming to the door and knocking, not as a homeless or transient seeking shelter, but as the master of the house, expecting alert servants to respond immediately to his signal and welcome his entrance. He's the master of the house. Jesus authoritatively rebukes 
the church in Laodicea with strong language. We've seen, you make me want to gag. Um, you're rich, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor, blind, and naked. These don't sound like loving words. So how is this loving? But we see Jesus say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. It's in his discipline that Jesus exposes the lie that the Laodiceans were believing, that they falsely thought that they, they had safety and security in. So to let them continue in that delusion would really be the cruel thing. Instead, he offers them repentance and he invites them into his embrace and into his wealth and he symbolizes this with a feast. So, like I mentioned last week, it was Brian Alton that told me that my lights were on. He exposed the need that I was unaware of that I should turn my lights off. Well, how rude it was for Brian to point out something wrong in my life, right? How dare he tell me that I have a need, and who is he to tell me how to fix it? Should I get mad at Brian for exposing that truth? No, he was letting me know because he cared. See, the Laodiceans, they were seemingly content to just go with the status quo, even if it wouldn't last, until Jesus exposes the flaw in that and in their physical false temporal hope and he offers them this true spiritual eternal hope in him he doesn't let them settle for less than what he knows is going to be eternally satisfying he loves his church and he wants them to find their hope in him and this is where he symbolizes this with a feast because when jesus comes to the door he doesn't come in looking for what you have to offer like all right guys you've been holding out on me i need you to finally give um, he doesn't do that. He's bringing his feast. But I want to ask too, when you open that door, if you picture yourself opening that door, what's the expression on Jesus' face as the master of the house who has come for you? A lot of times we, th we think, you know, Jesus loves us, but he only does so begrudgingly. Or he loves us, but he doesn't like us. And he saves us, but only because he has to. Not because he wants to. So here, we see something different. We see Jesus as present and full of care. Not distant and disappointed. He says, behold. Which means, look, I'm here. I stand. Which means I've come for you and I'm waiting for you. And I knock which means I'm calling out to you. This knock on the door in, the, in this scripture, yeah, it was for the Laodiceans, sure. But I would say it's also just as much for you and me today. He says, if anyone hears my voice. So regardless of whether or not the Laodiceans heard Jesus' call, responded to Jesus' call, the opportunity is just as much yours today. What does it look like when we open the door to Jesus? I was reading this great little book um, with my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter a couple weeks ago called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And in it, she writes this. When you open the windows, do you have to beg the fresh air to come in? 
or when you open the curtains in the morning? Do you have to argue with the sun to make it shine into your room? How silly. You just open the windows and the air flows in. You open the curtains and the sun shines in. This is what it's like when we open the door to Jesus. You don't need to beg and plead. He's not here for you to say a magic password. You don't need to argue or convince him or offer him something for him to come in. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. This is Jesus' embrace when we open that door. Check out this, um, this excerpt from a poem written by um, writer and speaker Paul David Tripp. He says this about this kind of hope. What gives me this courage? What offers me this hope? It is this one thing. I know for certain that there are two words that I'll never hear. I know that you will never look me in the eye and say, go away. You will not send me from your presence. You will not drive me from your grace. You will not separate me from your glory. You will not eliminate me from your promises. You will never, ever, ever send me away. Because your anger was born by another. Because my separation was carried by him. Because he was sent away. I will never, I will never be. That's, that's how Jesus sees you. That's Jesus' embrace towards you. God comes to our self-sufficient seclusion with the love of a parent who knows that his stubborn child would not survive without him. Is Jesus on the outside knocking at the door of your life? What's your response? Have we become too easily pleased with our false measures of success? that we've settled for less than the king's embrace and his feast. Do you picture Jesus as coming as an imminent threat or with a loving embrace? Here in this scripture, we see both realities. He says to the one who rejects him, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you don't abide in me, I will not abide in you. But he says to the one who opens the door, I will feast with you. So Jesus describes this church in Laodicea as being lukewarm, as being proud yet poor, and secluded. And if we place our faith in anything other than this Jesus, then our faithlessness will be lukewarmness, lukewarm at best. Our mind will be proud in things that are worthless. And our hearts will remain secluded. But Jesus is passionate about you. And one day, he will end all lukewarmness. He'll end the indifference. And again, he doesn't need you to be passionate for him. But you are able to be passionate today 
because he is sufficient. As the all-sufficient one, Jesus, we don't need to hide or avoid our needs. We can readily go to his throne of grace and ask for the help that we do need to buy this gold from him. Jesus is the one who was separated and sent away and yet comes and knocks on your door, the door that we've shut. Not because he's locked out and lonely, because he loves his bride, the church. He wants us to feast with him. So, let's respond to this Jesus. Let's respond from our apathy, where we've given up, with zealous repentance. Because he's already accomplished it all. Our fight is not in vain. Let's repent. Let's turn to Jesus from our spiritual poverty by buying this gold refined by fire that we can't afford, but we can go to his grace. Let's turn from our seclusion by opening the door to Jesus. And Jesus concludes this letter in his authority as the conqueror with an invitation to feast and to conquer in him. And he says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, thank you so much for coming to our world from your kingdom to take on flesh so that you could become the perfect substitute who lives a perfect faithful life and dies in our place to welcome us into your house. Thank you for doing that for us, that even though we walk through this life of faith with pitfalls and lukewarmness and pride and seclusion, you don't give up on us. You come for us, you challenge us, and you give us the faith that we need to follow you until one day we're restored perfectly with you. And we can't wait for that day when we truly feast with you. Until then, we celebrate as a family of those who have been redeemed by you, Jesus. So um, come and bring that today and this week. Love you, Lord. Amen.